Well, imagine that you have had to escape the persecution of your country because of your faith. It's probably not hard for some of us to imagine, given where things seem to be going. Um, I think a lot of people are discouraged about uh, the direction of things. You've seen over the year the slide of the culture becoming increasingly antagonistic towards people of faith, particularly Christians. But imagine if you lived in a country in which you and maybe relatives and other family members felt the need to move because of it, even to go to a different country because you knew it was going to be safer for your family to go to a different country, right? Now, you miss being home, but you're in safer confines for your family. It would probably be hard to keep the right perspective in that because maybe you prayed for your country for years and you've still seen this slide and you're like, God, where are you in all of this? You haven't seemed to answer my prayers. I mean, how are you to relate to a government that seems to be antagonistic towards people of faith? And even people in the church disagree with you on how you're to respond. Everything is being questioned. Being questioned about your faith, being questioned about how the church responds, your family, and the relationship with culture and the government. And if you're curious about finding the answer to some of these questions, you're gonna enjoy our next venture into our next book which is going to be 1 Peter. The book was written to Christians who fled their country because of persecution. They were considered aliens. This is the Bible's word. Strangers in their society. And Peter exhorts them to be steadfast in the midst of this, to basically model the behavior of their Savior. Peter wrote the epistle around the time that Nero was ruling in 64 AD. A fire had destroyed uh, much of Rome, and Nero blamed Christians because they were the new religion. They were the fanatical edge of Judaism. I mean, they uh, were following a crucified guy. They were this offshoot of Judaism. They were fanatical. I mean, there were stereotypes for Christians then, just like there are stereotypes now. Ours may be different than what they were then, but they're still stereotypes. Uh, Romans viewed Christians as atheists. Some, just like other philosophers, who denied the many gods of Rome. So Roman citizens thought they were atheists. They called them cannibals for claiming to eat the flesh of Jesus and, and to drink his blood. They were even considered incestuous because of saying, I love you, brother, and I love you, sister. So stereotypes didn't end there. And some can lead to more insidious things. And so what happened in the first century was that Nero burned Christians to be torches in his garden at night. And for further entertainment, he even fed Christians to wild animals in public displays for people to witness. 
thousands are said to have died as a result. How about today? Well, according to the International Society for Human Rights, which is, by the way, a non-religious group, 80% of all religious discrimination in the world today goes on with Christians. They're being the victims. In the worst countries, Christians are routinely subjected to imprisonment, torture, forced labor, and murder. Every day, did you know that 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith? Did you see that on the news? No. So reports the 2021 World Watch List, which is uh, an accounting organization with open doors. That's an organization, open doors, which has listed the worst countries for religious persecution. Uh, David Curry, the president of Open Doors, says this, you might think the list is all about oppression, but the list is really all about resilience. The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, losing their faith, and turning away from one another. But that's not what's happening. Instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The nations that were listed as the worst persecutors have 309 million Christians living in places of very high or extreme levels of persecution. And that's up from 260 million in last year's list. Among the top 10 worst persecutors are North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, and India. So, is 1 Peter relevant? Yeah, it really is. Now, you don't have to have imprisonment or torture or death for persecution. Persecution can come in milder forms as well, and I think we see that certainly in, in our country. I'm not going to play the position of martyr because we're blessed as well, but uh, we, we still see it happen. So let's take a look at 1 Peter 1 and 2. I don't know how long we'll be there, but let me tell you something. The last couple months, you know, we've been doing the Advent sermons and we had Thanksgiving and all. It was like a breath of fresh air to dig into a book and to start, you know, working the passage and uh, how much that I'm really looking forward to working through 1 Peter for, what, the next several years? We don't know. Yeah. Let's all look at uh, 1 Peter, but let's stand, okay? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Much could be said about Peter. We could probably do a whole series on Peter, which we aren't going to take the time to do. But he's what I call the wild card apostle, was he not? He was a fiery fisherman, quick-tempered. Uh, he took a sword to a guard who came to Jesus, right? He was hasty to make a promise about his fidelity to Jesus without nary a thought about his own humanness. 
He denied Jesus three times, and that resulted in bitter tears of regrets. He knew great success and great failure in matters of faith when he walked on water, and then he sank. (laughs) He proclaimed himself a general contractor by offering to set up three tabernacles to build for Moses and Elijah and Jesus at the transfiguration. He was initially unwilling at the Last Supper to enter into the humility of having his feet washed by Jesus. Jesus' words of building the church upon Peter the rock began to crystallize because of two things, an empty tomb and an upper room. And the Holy Spirit came upon him. I think it gives us someone to relate to. A flawed apostle. I know often they're revered and they should certainly be respected, but flawed. Was he not? That that helps me to trust the Bible, that the Bible is not whitewashing the failures of some of its leaders. You look at David, you look at Peter, and certainly we see that. And yet, here's what I want you to see. God used him. And God uses you. And God uses me. And one thing I can boldly stand before you and say, I am flawed. My wife can tell you many of my flaws. The fact that she still loves me amazes me every day. But I am flawed. But God still used Peter. And what, did ha- what happened on that day of Pentecost? He preaches and thousands came to Christ. Wait a minute. The same guy who had the temper, who took a sword to somebody? Yep, the same guy who failed Jesus miserably? Sure enough, God used him. Boy, I'm encouraged by that. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's one with authority to speak for Jesus. Apostles were the early church's leaders. They were the the pioneers. They were starting churches. And down the line, we have this church, which comes with a rich heritage that started with the apostles. And they set before us a kind of pattern in basic things that we could follow in what a church should be doing. That's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The next statement has a mouthful of meaning. To those who are elect exiles, of the dispersion. The recipients are Christians. The recipients of this book are Christians who've been exiled because of persecution, Nero and Rome. But Peter frames their identity. This is what I want you to get and understand. He frames their identity not because of their plight, but through their relationship with a holy and sovereign God. This is so instructive for us today. I mean, often, you know, I think past mistakes I've made, and I could think, man, I am such a loser. And you may think those thoughts as well. But that's not our identity. 
Our identity is not the failures of the past, but you're still a child of God, an elect one. That's where we start. Loved by an almighty, holy, sovereign God. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. They are elect Jews and Gentiles called by God. That means that they are Christians not by human design, but God's choice, just like Israel, that was called to be God's people. God is choosing us. We are elect. Now, there are some people that don't like that. They want to think that we initiated this. We are children of God without any merit of our own. We are on the receiving end of God's goodness. Ephesians 1 gives special emphasis to this when it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why was all of this done? To give God glory for his grace, not to show us about how wise we were in our choices. Of all the religions in the world, I understood Christianity was the right one. Well, that may be true, but that's not why you came to Christ. God moved in your heart. He initiated the process. We have a king in a kingdom of servants. We are in a kingdom. And our king, Christ, and our kingdom is ultimately in heaven. You know, our passage says to those who are elect exiles, exiles where? Where's our home? We are called in Philippians 3.20, the citizens of what? Heaven. You may think that, that is weird verbiage. It means that our oath of citizenship is fidelity to Jesus Christ as our leader and to his kingdom. That is our ultimate fidelity. Many Christians don't get this, but that's the scriptural testimony. And our homeland, our ultimate country, is not of this world. Listen to Hebrews. And I don't claim that I'm going to touch on every implication of this truth, but let's at least get the main idea here. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been seeking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So again, our ultimate allegiance and perspective and hope are rooted not in a kingdom of this world. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong to be a good citizen. It doesn't mean it's wrong to be involved in politics. But we do that all 
with the perspective of making a heavenly difference, of being citizens of heaven, of a testimony to our ultimate citizenship. We are in a pagan society as aliens and sojourners. We are displaced people whose focus must fixate upon our heavenly home, not this one. Listen, I struggle just like you do the last two years with the division, with the pandemic, with the masking, with the vaccines, all these other things. A million questions we have about it all. And it's easy to get caught up in all of that to where all of our conversation is that. I'm not saying don't have a conversation, but where, what, what kind of difference does it make that I'm a citizen of heaven? What difference does it make that Jesus is my king? At least it means this, that my feet are on a firm foundation, that whatever is going on around me, I have a sure foundation. And ultimately, I don't have to worry. Even if they could kill me, even if there would be some kind of bug put in the injection of the vaccine and I would die from it, I mean, whatever they do, okay? <laughs> My life is in his hands. I win if I die, I win if I live because I'm in Christ. So I ultimately don't have anything to worry about and it's with that kind of steadfastness that I can move. It doesn't mean I'm not asking some of the same questions that people are asking, but I do it in this context of where, wait a minute, we live in a dirty world? Are you telling me that politicians are not telling us the truth? Wow, newsflash. I have a steady foundation. Again, just ask yourself the question, what difference does it make that we are Christians and that our homeland is heaven and that we are exiles? Meditate on that, on the difference that makes in how we're living our life and how we're dealing with all that's going on. Consider this ancient wisdom. The world is a bridge. The wise man will pass over it, but he will not build his house upon it. Our life on earth is temporary. We are aliens. You know what you have right now? You have a VRBO here on earth, right? And you all recognize that's just temporary. We are sacred people chosen by God for an eternal citizenship. And being citizens of heaven, I think, gives us even more reason to be good citizens here on earth, loving our neighbor, doing justice so they can taste the goodness of God. The dispersion originally referred to Jews being out of their homeland, but now it refers to Christians here in 1 Peter. Jews and Greeks spreading throughout the world. And we have a map that doesn't have all of it, but in the uh, right section in the bottom, you see, I didn't realize that putting it in the format for the slide presentation today would cut out the, the, the map, so I apologize for that. 
but you can at least see some of Asia and Bithynia. Um, that's northern Turkey, and that's where these sections were. Whether you live in America or any other country, the point is you are in Christ, and you are part of a royal citizenship. Now, you may for a season feel isolated, but take courage. You are a part of God's chosen, elect people. That's our hope. Our hope is not that there'll be a democracy. That's not our hope. My hope is not to create some new political system. That's not my ultimate hope for people, but for them to know that in Christ you become a citizen of heaven. That way, I've got a heavenly citizenship, a sure foundation. What political system has a sure foundation like that? What president can deliver that sure foundation like that? None. What country can give you that sure foundation? None. Not in comparison to Christ. Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We are made elect exiles according to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are chosen by God, redeemed by the Son, set apart, sanctified by the Spirit. We could say it this way. We have a, we have a privilege of being a part of a Trinitarian salvation. Each personage of the Trinity playing a part. Our salvation starts and ends with the goodness of God, with the entire Godhead participating. Now, I may not have known it at the time, but on an island in Scroon Lake, New York, when I was 13 years old, when I gave my heart to Christ, the three persons of the Godhead were at work in my salvation. And so he is with you when you came to Christ. The Godhead at work. And our passage says, the Father foreknew. Interesting term. Casual observers think that foreknowledge simply is based on the omniscience of God to know what happens in the future. Therefore, since he knew we were going to accept him, that's what foreknowledge is. And that's an erroneous understanding. Acts 2.23 is the only other passage that uses this exact same word. And by the way, it's in a sermon by Peter. And he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Do we really think that this means that God knew that Jesus would be killed and therefore he based his plan for Jesus on what he thought? knew in the future would happen? That's ludicrous. The death of Jesus was not accidental. It was not in the hands of other men. God is sovereign. It was not under the control of Jewish religious leaders or Roman politicians, even though they're responsible for their part. The death of Christ actually fulfilled prophecy. God planned it out years before. And all the human instruments that played a part were simply a part of God's eternal plan. Isaiah 53.10 spoke of Christ prolonging his days 
after his death. And Peter quotes from Psalm 16 that Christ would not see his flesh corrupted uh, and he would not be abandoned in Hades. Without realizing it, every torturer of Christ carried out the will of God. The Apostle Paul would later say in Acts 13, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. God knew all along. God had a plan. That foreknowledge played a part in his plan. He foreknew these events of human rebellion to bring about his eternal purposes. I mean, in the worst of circumstances, we're probably prone to also say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God has not forgotten us. He is still sovereign. He is still working in our lives. And God was choosing for Jesus to be a part of the redemptive plan, and God knew what would happen in the future for him. And Jesus knew as well. Jesus knew that his life on earth for those 33 years, his face was going to be set like flint on Jerusalem, and that meant death. And yet he willingly submitted to the plan of the Father in obedience. The future confirmed the purpose and will of God for Jesus. God purposes it and knows in the future that it will come about. He's the initiator. He does it for his glory and honor. And we are the responders to him, trusting him for our future in life. So when we are discouraged, we may well remind ourselves that the Christian church came about because of the plan of God, because of his purposes being fulfilled. That's foreknowledge. It's the will of God taking place, and he knows his will will take place in the future. And that's for the glory of God, not man. You think foreknowledge is saying, these people are so smart to choose God. No, it's that this God is so great and good that it allows these people to be a part of his plan. That's what foreknowledge does. The Spirit plays a part, too. Our election is not just to fill out a card or walk an aisle, but to be sanctified, set apart by the Holy Spirit. So we can rest in the fact that God has chosen us to work in and through us in all circumstances. And in the midst of the pain, the Holy Spirit is molding us and shaping us. That includes maybe when you lose a job, when we lost the baby, when I got sick, when the relationship crumbled, when the country went to pot. The Holy Spirit is able to turn every circumstance into a vehicle for spiritual maturation for his children. William Barclay said it this way, it's the Holy Spirit who awakens within us the first faint longings for God and goodness. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin and leads us 
to the cross where that sin is forgiven. It is the Holy Spirit who enables us to be freed from the sins which have us in their grip and to gain the virtues which are the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the assurance that our sins are forgiven and that Jesus Christ is Lord. The beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life are the work of the Holy Spirit. End quote. I want you to notice what our election is not. Our election is not to be in a Christian club. Our uh, election is not so we can wear Christian t-shirts. Our election is not so we can suck on Christian mints and watch Christian movies and drive to the theater in our cars and convert the world through our Christian bumper stickers. Our passage says, we are called, we are elect for what? Obedience. As we listen and submit to the authority of Christ, we demonstrate we're one of his children. My will becomes subservient. That's not a term we like saying. Submit, subservient, these are words not often in our vocabulary. My flesh works against that. But that's exactly what I am. I am a bond slave to Christ. And every morning when I read the scripture and I'm praying, I realize I've got so much flesh wanting me to be recognized, playing its usual arrogant self, you know, making sure I'm a center of the narrative. And then I have the scripture and I have the Holy Spirit communicating a much different perspective. And I have to realize I have to choose to be subservient to his will for my life, to listen to the Holy Spirit. Anybody who thinks that's easy, well, just wait. Hopefully it'll come in that struggle. You'll realize that there's actually joy in that and being subservient to him. We don't just sign off on the right doctrines, although that's needed. You can believe the right things and still not be a Christian. Even demons can believe the right things, it says in James 2. The difference is that for the Christian, I I did that ultimately in the gospel, that I can't find my way to heaven on my own, so I'm going to submit to God's plan in the gospel so that I can receive the redemption of God, and now I want my life to be subservient to God's will, including how I handle my money, how I function as a husband and a father with my friends as a pastor, how I drive my car without having one finger up. It it influences every part of me, or should, in being subservient. And the difference is the will of the Christian is subservient to the will of Christ. But to the unconverted self, self is king. But when I forgive others, sometimes that's a hard choice to make because the self wants vengeance. It's what the flesh wants. We humble ourselves and admit we're wrong. I'm a huge baseball fan, and I'm wondering, 
why in the heck can't these owners and the players' union get together and solve the issue? You want to know why? Pride and arrogance. Nobody wants to make the first move. Nobody wants to humble themselves. The point is, is that as a servant of the kingdom of God, I'm submitting to my king in all things. And I realize the struggle with my flesh, the struggle in my own will. Don't discount that, my friends. I, yes, there's a devil, okay? And, and I'm not going to discount that the devil does stuff. I know, I believe he's real. But I believe he can only be in one place at one time. And so... Um, He might send some of his minions to do bidding on us. And yes, there's a world that has an ideological framework that is against Christianity, and we battle that as well. But I'll tell you what, my biggest enemy is me and my flesh. What I have to struggle with and my will, being submissive, being submissive even to my spouse to help her. I mean, how many times when Somebody asks you to do something. It's like, eh. okay. you have that, have that initial thing, right? We're all familiar with it. That's the flesh. But the Spirit of God says, humble, serve, love, forgive. You see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. When your will is not subservient to Christ, You can be as right as rain about a lot of policy issues, moral issues, but you still have a hard heart. So I want my my heart to be more like terry cloth than sandpaper. Then there's this term, sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. It harkens back to several different ways in which this term was used in the Old Testament. It was used of being cleansed after being healed from sickness. It was used of the priests being set apart for service to God. Aaron and the priests were sprinkled with the blood of the sacrificial lamb uh, when they were set apart for service. It was also used for the people of God responding to the establishment of a covenant. Uh, Moses sprinkled half the blood on the oxen, the other half on the on the altar, and uh, it was the blood of the oxen on the people and then the other half on the altar. Uh, And the people stated, all that the Lord has said, we will do. This was done during the sprinkling. So in other words, there was this immediate allegiance to God, commitment to obey because of the sprinkling of the blood. They understood what it meant. And so here's Peter grabbing this phrase that was pregnant with meaning for these Jewish believers. You are sprinkled with the blood of Christ at salvation. You are bound to express that fact through what? Obedience. That's how we love him. And then Peter's greeting typifies characteristics of obedient Christians. Enjoying peace. And grace. I'm six foot one. Now, I'm assuming I'm still six foot one. As uh, you get older, I don't know, they say you shrink some. I don't know. I haven't, haven't measured myself recently. 
But uh, it's come in handy at times when we used to take our kids to the amusement park or we went to a ball game. I could usually see above the crowd. I could find our car. I could find the gate. And all our kids needed to do was just follow me, and I'd make sure we didn't lead them into a ditch, and we went to where we needed to go, right? It's the same when we obey Jesus. I may not be able to see all of what the future holds, but I'm going to obey him in the now with what he's asking me to do. And I love what Isaiah, Isaiah 48, 18 says. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. And then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Peace, righteousness are ours as we obey. You know, somehow have concocted this idea of peace when we fulfill the American dream, when I get a new car, or I'll feel better if I got the raise, or whatever. And one of the things I've learned is that those are very short-lived in terms of any kind of excitement or peace or happiness. Walking with Jesus, following him in the present, even when things are really difficult, and then get this, Peter is saying this to people who've lost loved ones, who have left their homeland, and he's saying, grace and peace be yours. Wow. Grace and peace be yours when you finally move into that new house. Grace and peace be yours when your candidate gets elected. Grace and peace be yours when you're fully vaccinated. Grace and peace be yours when you have the new clothes, when you find that spouse. We fill in the blank with a myriad of things, and yet we find grace and peace fleeting when we look at those things. Those things aren't wrong in and of themselves, but that's not the basis for my grace and peace. I am an elect exile who has been chosen to be obedient to my King, Jesus Christ. That's what my life is to be about. That's where I find my grace and peace. Many times, my wife and I have hit our knees not knowing what to do. Maybe it's about a situation with the kids. It could be a myriad of things. And she'll ask, and I'll say, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. But let's ask God. We'll hit our knees, and we'll ask God to help us to, to give us wisdom and it's amazing in that moment. Not knowing what the future would hold. But God provides grace. He provides peace. Yeah, I don't think prayer is so much about getting what we want as it is. It's the most obedient thing you can do in the moment. Constantly pray. Without ceasing. Because it's the one act 
that says, I'm not God. And I need you. And don't we need that constantly? I love you.